It's a little bit of reverb for the guys in the back. Please, please turn that down. That is way too much for me up here. All right. One of the most famous pastors in America today is Rick Warren, who's the pastor of Saddleback Church in Los Angeles. And one of the reasons Rick Warren became so famous is that his church grew very rapidly across the 80s and 90s. And in 1995, he decided to write a book um, to explain the methods that he used to grow his church, which was called the Purpose Driven Church. And this book became really huge in the Christian world at large. It really reshaped the way a lot of people plant churches and do ministry. It impacted a lot of seminaries, including the one that I graduated from. And the main idea in the book goes like this. Jesus told us to reach lost people, but in our world today, we have all these people around us who don't know anything about Jesus, and they really don't care to learn. So how are we supposed to reach these folks? And Warren says, what we need to do is tailor the church's message to respond to the felt needs of the people in the church's surrounding community. So what he says is we've got to figure out, we've got to imagine what is the average person like in the area around us, and then we've got to think what would this person's problems likely be in life, and then he says you've got to build church programs and sermons which are about catering to this average person in the community, at which you tell him, well, the gospel can meet your felt needs. The gospel can solve your big problems in life. Basically, you sell them on the idea that Jesus will improve their lives. So if you're in a suburban area with young families, you say things like, coming to Christ will improve your marriage. Coming to Christ will make sure your kids grow up the right way. You're packaging the gospel as a solution to people's life problems. Rick Warren said, it's my deep conviction that anybody can be one to Christ if you discover the key to his or her heart. And the most likely place to start looking for that key is within the person's felt needs. And using this strategy, Saddleback got huge. Today it's got 11 campuses, it's got 24,000 weekly attenders, and other churches that followed this guidance also got huge. So we might well think, well, Rick Warren's on to something. But what's interesting is when you read the New Testament, you never once find anybody trying to make disciples or win the lost using this method. And I think that's because this method totally misunderstands the essence of Christianity. Because, friends, the gospel is not a product that we push. Evangelism isn't sales. Conversion isn't closing the deal. Biblical Christianity is not a business. Now, that's very hard for people to grasp in our capitalistic entrepreneurial culture because we're prone to see everything as a business. We're prone to see how we can monetize everything. Everything is marketing. Everything is branding. But friends, the gospel of Jesus Christ is not of this world. And the methods that Jesus has given us to proclaim the good news about his deity, death, and resurrection are not marketing and sales. Conversion is not simply the right use of the right means, to paraphrase the heretic Charles Finney. It's not just that if I use the right set of manipulative marketing methods, I can convince people into saying, Jesus is right for me, like Colgate toothpaste is right for me. No, this is not what we're to do. We are not fast-talking salesmen who apply psychological pressure. Conversion is the sovereign, supernatural work of Almighty God by which He imparts life to the dead through the declaration of the gospel. 
And what we're going to see this morning as we continue our study in the Gospel of Matthew is a very short passage in which the Lord Jesus talks with two men, both of whom say, I want to follow you, Jesus. Now, if Jesus is looking to make a sale, here's a great opportunity, right? But instead of making a sales pitch, instead of saying, oh, I perceive your felt needs and let me tell you how I'm going to make your life better. Instead, Jesus just gives them some very hard truths. He's quite confrontational. This is not a sales pitch. These are not the things that are designed to win friends and influence people. But instead, Jesus just tells them the unvarnished truth, a truth that many people today have forgotten, which is that coming to Christ may well not make your life much better in this world. It may not solve your immediate problems because following Christ might make your life quite difficult. And that's what Jesus is going to tell these two men today. And as he does, he's going to show us the true cost of what it means to be a Christian what it means to accept the gospel, and what it means to be a disciple. So what we're going to see today is the path of being Jesus' follower is a hard path. And that's what we see in Matthew 8, 18 to 22. What I want to do first is read our whole passage, and then we'll talk about it. So at the risk of sounding like we're doing the Catholic thing of stand up and sit down, let's stand again as we're going to hear God's word read again. That's a good practice to do. It's a biblical practice. Matthew 8, 18. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. This is God's word. Please be seated. This passage shows us three truths about important or authentic biblical Christ-following discipleship. Number one, what we're going to see today is Jesus is the Lord who suffers and dies, yet triumphs in great glory, and He is the one to whom we should devote our whole lives. Number two, we're going to see that following Jesus does not give us an easy life. And number three, we're going to see that following Jesus must take precedence over everything else, every other obligation that exists in our lives. So let's start with our first point, which is that Jesus is the Lord who suffers and dies, and yet is triumphant, and that we should follow him. And you say, well, I just heard this passage read, and I didn't hear that. I grant that. But what I want us to focus on in this first point is a, a statement Jesus makes in verse 20, where he calls himself the Son of Man. This phrase, Son of Man, is a phrase we find many times in the Gospels. And when it's used, it's always used by Jesus to talk about himself. In fact, this is Jesus' favorite way to talk about himself in the Gospels. And here in chapter 8, verse 20, this is the first time Jesus calls himself the Son of Man in Matthew's Gospel. And so I want to begin by thinking about what this phrase means, because we're going to figure out this is very loaded with theological content. And as we think about this phrase, I want to do two things. First, I want us to think about the background of this phrase from the Old Testament, and then I want us to examine how Jesus uses this phrase in Matthew's Gospel. So first, how is this term, Son of Man, used in the Old Testament? When Jesus walked on the earth 2,000 years ago, he was in a real place at a real time, that, and, and the culture he was in was totally saturated with the Old Testament. And this phrase, Son of Man, is found many times in the Old Testament, 
And so it helps to know how the Old Testament used this phrase to understand how the people who heard Jesus would have understood what he was saying. This phrase, Son of Man, is used in four different ways in the Old Testament. First, in a number of passages like Psalm 8, uh, we, we learn that the phrase Son of Man basically just means being a human. Psalm 8, 4 says, what is, mindful that you are, or what is man that you are mindful of him and the Son of Man that you care for him? Okay, so Son of Man just means man being a human. Second, in Psalm 80, this phrase is also used to speak about the nation of Israel. Israel is referred to metaphorically in an extended discussion as the Son of Man. Third, this phrase is found 93 times in the book of Ezekiel. And in each case, God is speaking to the prophet, calling him Son of Man. We also find this same usage in Daniel chapter 8, where once the prophet is referred to as son of man. And so the prophets could also be called son of man in the Old Testament. And fourth, this phrase, son of man, appears in a very important passage that we looked at last fall, in which the prophet Daniel receives a complex vision depicting the future of human history. And in the middle of this vision, in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 13, we read this. He says, I saw in the night visions... And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed." So in this vision, one like a son of man appears, and a few things are said about him. First, he comes on the clouds. This is really interesting, because everywhere else in the Old Testament where we see someone riding on the clouds, it's God. Okay? So here's someone who does what only God does. Number two, this figure appears before the Ancient of Days. This one who does what only God does now speaks to God. God talking to God. This vision makes no sense without the doctrine of the Trinity. And what happens? Third, the Ancient of Days, the Father, gives the Son of Man a glorious rulership and a kingdom. A global, perpetual, final kingdom which will rule over everyone forever with no end, no successor. And so the Son of Man is this prophesied ultimate glorious figure who will reign over this world and thus end history. Now I think all four of these concepts are, understanding, are useful in understanding why Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. First, because Jesus is truly human. Now that might seem rather obvious to us today, but it was not obvious in antiquity. One of the earliest heresies that Christians had to face was docetism, which said that Jesus only seemed to be human. He was truly divine, but his humanity was an illusion. But Jesus insists that he who is able to perform the amazing miracles we just looked at last week, he who declared himself to be the fulfillment of the whole Old Testament, he says, I am a son of man, I am human. Number two, Jesus is the new and better Israel. This is a theme we've seen already many times in Matthew's Gospel. Remember, Matthew tells us, just like Israel once came up out of Egypt, so too Jesus has come up out of Egypt. And then as Israel went through the waters of the Red Sea, Jesus went through the waters of baptism. 
As Israel wandered for 40 years in the wilderness, Jesus was tempted for 40 days in the wilderness. And as Israel then came to a mountain to receive the law, Jesus then went up on a mountain and proclaimed the law's true meaning. Jesus has been reenacting Israel's history throughout this book. And where Israel failed in the Old Testament, Jesus, God's true eternal son, has succeeded. He is the new and better Israel. Third, this phrase, son of man, is, like I told you, often applied to the prophets. And Jesus is the new and better prophet. He comes bringing a better message of salvation. He comes preaching a more intense message of judgment than anything we find in the Old Testament. He is the new and better prophet. And fourth, as we'll see in a minute, Jesus is this Son of Man who will receive an eternal kingdom. And so I want you to see the Old Testament background to this phrase is really significant in revealing some truths about who Jesus is and what his mission is. But let's now consider how Jesus uses this phrase himself in the Gospel of Matthew. Because what we're going to find out is Jesus adds additional significance to this title. Depending on how you count them, Jesus uses this phrase about 30 times in the Gospel of Matthew. And most of the early times he uses it, he uses it as nothing more than a way to talk about himself. Like in our passage, chapter 8, verse 20. Here the phrase, son of man, is basically the equivalent of the word I. He says, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He could have said, I have nowhere to lay my head, right? But slowly, across the course of this book, we begin to find that Jesus has a very consistent pattern in how you, he uses this phrase. And eventually, by the middle of this book, when he uses it, he's only ever talking about two things. First, Jesus often talks about being the Son of Man when he discusses the subject discussed in Daniel 7, that the Son of Man does what only God can do, and the Son of Man will receive from the Father an unending kingdom. And Jesus says, that Son of Man is me. I'm the one who will end history. So in Matthew 13, verse 41, we read, the Son of Man, Jesus, will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. Matthew 16, 27, the Son of Man, Jesus, is going to come with his angels in the glory of the Father, and then he will repay to each person what he has done. Matthew 19, the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne and judge the 12 tribes of Israel along with his disciples. And all of this builds up to the declaration Jesus makes at his trial. Matthew 26, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus says, that's me. I'm God in the flesh. I'm the eternal king. I'm the Son of Man. But Jesus also uses this title, Son of Man, when he talks about another aspect of his ministry that we don't find uh, described using this language in the Old Testament. Not his ultimate triumph, but Jesus uses this phrase over and over to talk about his impending suffering and death. Jesus says this as early as Matthew 12, 40, where he says, Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. It's the first reference to his death, burial, and resurrection we find in this book. Again, later in this book, he says in chapter 17, the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Again, 17, he says the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. 
And as the book goes, he gets more and more specific about this. In chapter 20, listen to the specificity here. He predicts, The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked, flogged, and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. That's the whole thing, right? Several chapters before it happens. Again, using the language of Son of Man. And he keeps talking like this right up until his betrayal. He says, see, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. When Jesus talks about his suffering and death in this book, he always does so by talking about himself as the Son of Man. And so Jesus adds to this complicated title the idea that not only is he uh, a human, not only is he the new and greater Israel, not only is he the new and greater prophet, not only is he the ultimate king who will reign forever, but that his path to victory runs through the cross. And all of that is what it means that Jesus is the Son of Man. Now, of course, Jesus' hearers wouldn't understand all of that right away. They would hear this term and think, well, what does that mean? Why is he talking about himself like that? And as they thought about the Old Testament, and as they listened closely to what he was saying, more and more over time they should have picked up on what he was getting at. But the fact is, Jesus is the Son of Man, and that means that he is the Lord. But what's interesting is the Son of Man didn't just come to do his own thing apart from human society or apart from other people. The Son of Man also came to call people to follow him. We began to see this back in chapter 4 as he walked by the Sea of Galilee and he saw two brothers, Simon and Andrew, who were casting a net into the sea and they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And Jesus did not come to do his work in secret. Instead, as he says in Luke 19, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. He called people to follow him, to learn from him, to listen to him to watch his lifestyle, to witness his miracles, and ultimately to testify to his resurrection. Jesus called disciples. And so far in this book, we've met four of these disciples, Peter and his brother Andrew, and John and his brother James, four fishermen from Capernaum. And Jesus said, follow me, and they did. They got out of their boats, they left their homes, and they went with Jesus around the countryside. But Jesus didn't just tell them to follow him. He also said, I'll make you into fishers of men. These guys would later go around and point other people to become disciples of Jesus. And how did they do that? Did they appeal to the felt needs of those around them? Did they engage in marketing strategies? Did they promise them gimmicks and entertainment on Sunday? No. They proclaimed the same message Jesus proclaimed in Matthew 4.17. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. God has sent his long-promised son, the king, into this world, and salvation from the wrath of God is available if we turn to him in repentant faith. In chapter 10, Jesus will tell his disciples, you guys, go preach this same message. And in the final words of this book, Jesus tells his disciples to take this message, not just throughout Israel, but to the whole world. And to hear this same message and proclaim it. And friends, this is not just the message that we are to proclaim if we are Christians. This is the message that we all need to make sure we have responded to. Friends, our biggest need is not 
to become our authentic selves. Our biggest need is not to have a happier marriage or to become better parents or to become successful. In the end, our biggest need is that we must have peace with God because we are sinners by nature and choice and we justly stand under the wrath of God. But Matthew 20, Jesus says, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus, the God-man, has died in our place. He has risen from the dead. And by repentantly turning in faith to him, we can be saved. That is our true need. And that is what Jesus truly offers. Not improvement in the things of this life, but hope in the face of death and judgment and the promise of an infinitely better life in the world to come. And that's what this is really all about. And that's what the earliest generations of Jesus' disciples proclaimed. But of course, in our day and age, many so-called Christians have decided we can build a better mousetrap. We can build a better message. We can attract more people more quickly than Jesus did. We can simulate the work of God. But friends, we don't want to simulate the work of God. We want to see God do the actual work that only He can do. And so we've got to stop buying into this worldliness and get back to first principles. And we've got to remember what it really means to become Jesus' disciple to proclaim the true gospel, and to remember that true discipleship is costly. And that's what we find as we come now to our second point, that following Jesus does not lead to an easy life. Let's dig into our text now. We're in Matthew chapter 8. And I told you last week, chapters 8 and 9 of this book are dominated by accounts of Jesus performing miracles. But twice in these chapters, the miracle accounts are interrupted by an interlude in which Jesus talks about discipleship. And this is the first of these two interludes. As we pick up, Jesus has performed many, many, many miracles. The end of chapter 4 said that Jesus' miracles had caused his fame to spread such that great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. All over this region, even other provinces, had people flowing to come see Jesus. And in addition to that first crowd, we saw last week Jesus healed the leper. And you might remember, after he did this, he told the leper, go tell the priest about this, but don't talk about it with anybody else. But the leper went and blabbed about it. And in Mark 1, we read that this caused even more people to flock to Jesus, to the point that he could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. And we saw a snippet of what this looked like in chapter 8, verse 16. That evening they brought to Jesus many who were oppressed by demons and he cast out the spirits with the word and he healed all who were sick. Jesus had long days and late nights healing all of these people who the crowds were bringing to him. At first we might think this is great news. All of these people in these crowds are following Jesus, right? Unfortunately, the vast majority of these people are only interested in Jesus' miracles that he'll heal their illnesses, or as we'll see in a few chapters, he can fill their bellies. But they aren't really interested in following or serving Jesus. They want to see how Jesus can serve them. This crowd is full of false disciples who will not long endure. And as the crowds have grown, and as these hangers on have demanded more and more from Jesus, Jesus' ministry has grown increasingly difficult. In fact, Mark chapter 4, which tells us a bit more about the setting for today's passage, says that so many people now 
are crowding around Jesus that he has to get in a boat and go offshore a little bit in order to have the space to just teach these people. And at this point, Jesus decides he's got to get away from all of this for a while. So we read chapter 8, verse 18. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. Now, Jesus has been in this fishing town of Capernaum on the Sea of Galilee. And he now says to his inner circle of disciples, guys, it's time to go. And they're going to go on a boat, probably the boat he's already in. And they're going to go across the, to the other side of the lake, away from this crowd. They're going to go away from Jewish Galilee into a Gentile region called the Decapolis. This will let Jesus get away with his disciples, his true disciples, for a while. And it will also give the crowd some time to calm down. But as Jesus prepares to leave on the boat with the disciples, someone steps forward from the crowd. Verse 19. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, the scribes were the teachers of the Jewish law. And most of the scribes were closely connected to the Pharisees, which is why in this book, scribes are almost always seen as negative figures. But here we learn there was at least one scribe who was following Jesus. And as he hears that Jesus means to leave, he steps forward and says, I want to come along. He wants a place on the boat to go to the Decapolis. And he makes this statement, which at first sounds like a wonderful statement. Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. But a closer inspection of this statement proves very interesting. First, this term teacher sounds very polite, doesn't it? But in Matthew's gospel, who is it that calls Jesus teacher? The Pharisees? The Sadducees? The political hacks who follow Herod? Corrupt tax collectors? The rich young ruler who would rather worship his money than Jesus? We never find any of Jesus' disciples calling him just teacher, except one, Judas Iscariot. In this book, Jesus' real disciples don't call him teacher, they call him Lord, and that's not accidental. Matthew emphasizes this so that we understand Jesus is not just one religious teacher out there among many. He is not one of many guides who can lead us all to the same paradise. No! Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by Him. He is the Lord. He has authority. He is the King of kings. He has the right to command us. And those who are rightly related to Jesus recognize that He has the right to rule over us. But this fellow comes forward and he just calls Jesus teacher. Okay. What does he say? I will follow wherever you go. Now first we'd say, man, that's a great attitude to have about Jesus, right? Except there's a good argument. That in Greek here, what he's really saying is, I will follow you wherever it is that you are going. So he may not be saying to Jesus here, you lead and I follow. He may be saying, I think there ought to be room in your boat for me. I want to go along with you on this trip. So we've got a guy who at first seems very enthusiastic about Jesus, seems very committed. And yet there are a few things here that seem perhaps a little bit off. How does Jesus respond to this fellow? Well, you'd think, here's somebody that really wants to, to, to get in the inner circle. Jesus is going to close the deal with him, right? He's going to play up all the good parts about following me, and he's going to play down all the parts that are pretty tough, right? No. Look at verse 20. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. 
This isn't the reply that we would expect if we watch how many modern evangelicals try to talk about the gospel. And I'm sure I've been guilty of this. We probably all have. But Jesus makes no sales pitch, no attempt to close the deal, no talking about how following him is going to vastly improve this guy's life. Instead, Jesus just says, following me is really hard. And Jesus demonstrates how hard it is to follow him. He says, little animals like foxes and birds, they get some shelter at least in their dens or their nests. But Jesus says, unlike them, I don't have regular shelter. He's often without a home. See, friends, Jesus' years of ministry were no walk in the park. It was a difficult life that Jesus chose to take in obedience to the will of the Father. Philippians 2 says, Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. Despite being truly God and dwelling in inexpressible glory and bliss in heaven, the Son obeyed the Father and took on a true human nature. It's an amazing act of humility. And when he came into this world, Jesus didn't come as a billionaire. He didn't come as the prince of you know, some gigantic empire. He came in a, a humble, to a humble family. Yes, it had a famous past, but not when he was born. It wasn't very exciting. And he was born into a humble situation, right? laid in a manger. And after a while, his family fled to Egypt, and they lived as refugees for a while. And they returned to Nazareth, and there Joseph worked as a carpenter or a construction worker. It wasn't a fancy way of life, but it made a living. I said a few months ago, there were, were a lot of opportunities for construction at this point in Galilee. And after a while, Jesus, we learn in Mark's gospel, himself became a carpenter. He would have earned a living that way. When the time came to do ministry, Jesus gave all of that up, and he moved away from Nazareth. He moved to Capernaum, and a few verses in this book may indicate that he had some kind of a residence in Capernaum, but for most of his years in ministry, Jesus wasn't getting to hang out at home every week. He was out on the road. He was sleeping under open sky, or as he would do on this very night, he's going to be sleeping in a boat which is going to wind up being tossed and thrown around in the middle of a terrible storm. Following Jesus was not a fun experience. I heard some prosperity preacher once say, Jesus had a mansion, Jesus had a Rolls, all of his disciples did too. Friends, that's false. This was a hard life. Living on the generosity of others for long periods of time. And during this journey, Jesus is going to run into some serious opposition, some serious dangerous circumstances, and it's going to lead him to Calvary and the cross. That's the road Jesus is on, and where Jesus went, so did his disciples go. That was the nature of discipleship, literally follow your master around. And as with Jesus, the disciples will wind up experiencing hostility and persecution we'll see in the next few chapters. They will face opposition, not just from governmental actors, not just from religious leaders, but chapter 10 says they'll even be opposed by their own family members. Being a disciple is hard. Many years later, Paul would speak of what his life serving Jesus was like. He says this, there were imprisonments, countless beatings. He was often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys, in dangers from, river, from rivers, from robbers, from my own people, from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night. 
in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And he says, apart from these things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. It's not easy following Jesus. And we're not just talking here about the external challenges, right? The battle for personal holiness is pretty tough too. Walking with Jesus is not the path of least resistance and luxury. Jesus says twice in this book, whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. He says that following him is like carrying your cross on the long road to the place of execution. This is the hardest road. And friends, that's not a great sales pitch, right? That's not going to get tons of people saying, sign me up for that. And you know what? Jesus is just fine with that. Because in our passage, he isn't enthralled by this big crowd around him. He wants to get away with the people who are truly loyal to him. And to follow Jesus like that means, friends, we will experience the same sorts of hardships he faced. He said himself in John 15, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you too. And as Jesus had a tough road, we will too. So well, that's kind of a downer, Ben. Why does Jesus tell the scribe this? Because Jesus perceives he needs to hear it. Probably because this scribe thinks, oh, I'm going to go with Jesus. It's going to be a great adventure. Look how powerful he is. We'll be safe. It's going to be lots of fun. This guy's susceptible to a sales pitch type of evangelism. And Jesus doesn't want him to be deceived about what he's volunteering for. Jesus thinks it's important this guy understands what he's signing up for. And friends, that's important. We need to tell people following Jesus is hard when we evangelize them. You might say, well, man, it makes me think they're not going to want to listen. Look, it's not about you anyway. If they get saved, it's because God did the work, not because you were really persuasive, right? And Jesus expects we're going to tell them the truth. It's hard to follow him. Discipleship is costly. And if you say, well, nobody ever told me that, they should have. Because Jesus thinks this is something we should talk about. Luke 14, he says, which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost? whether he has enough to complete it. So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. When you sign up to follow Jesus, it will cost you all. He is going to demand all from us. Now, that doesn't mean that we've got to take a vow of poverty like a monk. But we must be willing to lose everything in pursuit of Jesus. And in that, we become like Jesus who emptied himself, stepping into his creation, stepping into poverty, becoming obedient to death, even the death of the cross. And why did he do this? Out of love for us. 2 Corinthians 8 says, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, that is, in heaven, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you in your poverty here on earth might become rich, that is, in the new creation. By his incarnation, by his righteous life, by his suffering and death, by his resurrection, Jesus has secured for us the greatest of all inheritances, which is resurrection life in the new creation. But while we wait for that glory, which is yet to be revealed, we must follow Jesus down the hard road, out of love and loyalty for him who endured so much for us. So discipleship's tough, and he tells this guy, count the cost. We come now to our last point in which we see that following Jesus must take precedence over everything else in our lives. A second fellow now steps forward from the crowd. Verse 21. 
Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Now we're told that this man is a disciple, which may simply mean that he's part of the crowd, or it may mean that he is legitimately following Jesus. And he calls Jesus Lord, which, as we said a moment ago, suggests that he does belong to Jesus. And he comes forward with a request that I'm sure seemed pretty insignificant and reasonable to him. He says, Jesus, I'm willing to follow you on your journey, but before I do that, I've got something really important that I've got to do first. He says, I've got to bury my father. Now, over the years, there's been a ton of ink spilled on what this little phrase means. Some people think this means his father has just died and he's got to go set up the funeral. Other people think he's saying, well, my father's old and I've got to go help him with his declining years. And then when he passes, then I can come follow you. Either reading is possible. Honestly, it doesn't really matter. I think this man's father has died, but whichever way we take this, what this guy is saying to Jesus is, I'll follow you, but I've got a more important obligation I have to tend to first. That's the issue. And framed like that, this man probably thinks Jesus will say, well, go with my blessing. Because in first century Judaism, burying your parents was a really important deal. After all, the fifth commandment said, honor your father and mother. And seeing out your parents' final days and burying them, that was seen as an essential part of honoring your parents. The Mosaic Law recognized this. In Leviticus 21, we were told the priests were told not to touch things that were dead. But when a priest's parents died or other immediate family members died, they could touch them. They could be involved with the burial because it was obvious that a Jew should be involved with burying his parents. Rabbinic tradition likewise held that not only was burying your parents a duty, they said it was a duty that outweighed all other duties, including religious duties. The rabbi said if you were burying a parent, you didn't have to say the required prayers, you didn't have to study the law, you didn't even have to obey the laws regarding circumcision or killing the Passover lamb. So this guy probably thinks he's on very safe ground when he comes to Jesus and says, let me bury my father. Especially because there's an Old Testament passage which is very close to this situation. In 1 Kings 19, the prophet Elijah calls Elisha to follow him. And Elisha says, let me kiss my father and mother and then I will follow you. And Elijah gives permission. And we read then, Elisha went home, honored his parents, and he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. No big deal. That's probably what this fellow is expecting to happen here too. Especially since, if this man's father's actually died, there shouldn't actually be much delay here. Because in first century Judaism, dead bodies were buried within 24 hours. So, maybe he's just asking for a few hours reprieve. But contrary to this man's expectations, and probably contrary to our expectations, Jesus answers his request with a reply that sounds pretty harsh. Verse 22, And Jesus said to him, Follow me, and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Apparently at some previous time, Jesus had told this man, follow me, and now he repeats the command, follow me, don't go tending to this other obligation that you think is so important. No, come along at once. Why? What about his father? Jesus says, let the dead bury the dead. I'd say, well, what does that mean? I think the idea is this. Very little remains to be done for this man's deceased father at this point. There's not much he can do for his dad. 
Yes, there are reasons to go home and attend to this funeral, but the Lord Jesus has made a demand on this man's life. Jesus, the fount of all life and truth, is calling, and that's a call you don't put off. Is this man to turn his back on Jesus' call and go home to deal with a dead body? No. Leave the dead for those who aren't following Jesus, for those who are spiritually dead. I think that's the idea here. Now what's going on? Why does Jesus tell this man to follow him instead of burying his father? This doesn't seem like the compassionate Jesus that we might expect. This man's request doesn't sound unreasonable, right? What's going on? The truth we find here, illustrated, is intellectually very simple and practically very difficult. And the truth that Jesus is telling us is this. The command to follow him outweighs every other duty, obligation, or desire in this life. Jesus does not say in verse 21, you don't have a duty to your father. Of course this man has a duty to his father. But the duty to Jesus is greater. It outweighs the duty to his father. And before that greater obligation, every other obligation pales in comparison, no matter how legitimate other obligations or duties may be. Again, intellectually, this is not hard to grasp. But I'll tell you, it gets tough when you actually have to make this choice in life, right? What's more important, my duty to obey Jesus or my duty to do what my boss told me, even though it's unethical? My duty to obey Jesus or my family members' desire that I should approve of some ungodly decision they've made? My duty to obey Jesus or my desire to do something that I know is wrong but which I imagine will make me happy? When we're actually in those sorts of situations, our minds can begin to imagine all sorts of reasons that we think well, I should not obey Jesus, right? And quite often the excuses we come up with will be dressed in religious clothes. Well, if I don't listen to, to, to my boss, I'll get fired. And the Bible tells me I've got to take care of my family. So we come up with a biblical defense for sin. Or my family member who wants me to affirm his or her sinful choices needs the gospel. And if I go along with his or her sin for a while, maybe this will give me more opportunities to someday talk with them about Jesus. And so on the basis of some future evangelism we imagine we're going to do someday out there, we undermine the very proclamation of Jesus' lordship that we claim to later want to proclaim to them. Or Jesus wants me to be happy, doesn't he? And he says he'll work all things out for good, so if I make this sinful decision, he'll fix it for me. And friends, all those sorts of rationalizations are totally false. We cannot play these sorts of games with God and his word, trying to turn one biblical command against another and justify our sin. Our duty to actually obey Jesus outweighs the risk of being fired or alienating a family member or denying ourselves whatever happiness we think we would have had by sinning. Jesus demands to reign over us entirely. In one of the last verses of this book, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. How much? All authority. That means we never get to decide, well, I'm right and Jesus is wrong. Or, you know, Jesus, you're just being too demanding. Or, you know, Jesus, you just need to make room for what I need to do right now. No! We're called to this in Matthew 22. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. It's unswerving and total allegiance, inwardly and outwardly. And I know this is difficult because we do feel these other legitimate pulls in life because of duty or because of love. But 
our passage gets that, right? This passage really emphasizes the idea. Here's a guy who loves his dad. Here's a guy who has a religious duty to his dad. It's a legitimate pull. But when we have a pull, whether it's real or imagined, towards something other than obeying Jesus, what should we do? But Jesus will say this later in this book. And I'm going to emphasize family here because that's the context of this passage. Matthew 10, Jesus says, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. In Luke 14, he says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, Jesus isn't saying we should actually harbor hatred towards our family members. But he is saying, in comparison, our love and loyalty to him should be so great that it makes all of our other loves and loyalties look like hatred. Our loyalty to him is to be that absolute. Even to the extent where we would choose following Jesus over saving our own lives. That's what it is to be his disciple. That is Jesus' demand. That is what we are called to believing, friends. That's what he expects of us if we say, I belong to Jesus. And that's the mindset this fellow in verse 21 lacks. When he says, I'll follow you, but first I've got something more important, even if it just takes an hour or two. Friends, Jesus takes precedence over everything else in our lives. And so Jesus says, no, follow me and let everything else take care of itself. It's hard to do this. It takes a lot of faith, right? And friends, we all fail in many ways, including me. We all fail in many ways. Nobody can meet this standard, but that doesn't exempt us from striving to do it. This is the call. I say, I'm not sure how to do this. Friends, it takes faith. And four times the Bible tells us the righteous will live by faith. So we've got to trust Christ and follow him even when we don't see how it's going to work out or how this is going to turn out for good. That's what he's called us to. So to conclude... What I hope we've seen today is that following Jesus is not an us-focused, convenience-based, I'll give Jesus whatever time and energy I have left over after I do what I want to do approach to Christianity. That we think it's some sort of a guarantee that our felt needs are going to get improved and our lives are going to be really pleasant from here on out. No, friends. Instead, we've seen Jesus as the Lord. When he summons us to follow him, we must do so. His call takes precedence over everything else in our lives even over other legitimate obligations we have. And we must follow him even though it may make our lives more painful or difficult, even though we may lose our jobs or alienate loved ones and so forth. But friends, we follow Jesus not because he bribes us with a smooth and easy life or with health and wealth. We follow Jesus because he's the Lord and he has the right to command us. You know what's interesting here? These two guys who come forward, we have no idea whether they follow Jesus or not. But he had the right to make these demands, and he did. And yet, in his grace, you say, well, if it's so hard, why should we follow Jesus? Because, friends, we shouldn't understand that if we taste and see the Lord is still good, even though he doesn't promise us an easy path, even though he doesn't promise us a smooth onward and upward life without difficulties. Friends, because Jesus gives us more than all we could hope or ask. He gives us salvation from our sins. He is a very present help in times of trouble. And friends, he will give us eternal life in the end. And friends, Jesus, who requires so much loyalty from us, we need to know this. He is infinitely more faithful and loyal to us than we will ever be towards him. He is a wonderful and a good and a faithful master. So I hope that we have a deeper view of what it means to follow Jesus.
I hope we see evangelism as not making a sales pitch. I hope we've seen we should be upfront and honest with people who we want to win for Christ about the cost of discipleship. I hope we've seen that there are costs inherent in our own discipleship that we have to be ready to pay. And I pray all of this is an encouragement to persevere in following Jesus, even though it's hard. Be willing to take up your cross and follow him. Devote your life and your energy to his service. If today you have never repentantly entrusted yourself to Jesus, I hope you've heard his call to follow me. Turn away from your life of sin and trust yourself to Jesus' deity, death, and resurrection and follow him all of your days. If today you do know Jesus, I, I pray this is a wake-up call for you. It's so easy to drift into thinking, Jesus understands how hard my life is. Jesus understands these tough situations. He'll give me a pass this time. I can go do what I want. Friends, we've got to understand that's not the call on our lives. Jesus demands all of us all the time. And how we are as spouses, how we are as parents, how we are as employers or employees, these things must all reflect Jesus' lordship. Because in the end, everything we are and everything we have and everything we do must point to him. Because he is our master and we say, I belong to him. Our lives ought to show it. And so may Jesus give us the grace to, to repent where we fail to obey him. May he give us understanding about this call on our lives, and may we remember what it's really all about, which is Colossians 1.16, that says he made everything, and in the end, think about this, friends, everything is for Jesus. Everything is for Jesus, Colossians 1.16 says. So may we live like that this week.